Um, we're in the book of Psalms this morning, and we're continuing our journey through this unbelievably beautiful book. And I've shared this before, and I'll share it again. It is an incredibly beautiful book for so many reasons, but one of the reasons I think it is such a beautiful book is it does not cover up the messiness of our relationship with God. Did you hear me, church? Did you hear me that our relationship with God can be and is oftentimes messy? It is not perfect. It is not, dare I say, idyllic. How's that for a word for you? It is not, it is not something that is always waking up in the morning and, and just like, oh, this is going to be a wonderful, beautiful day. And, and, and God will just bless me once again. And it's just going to be a fantastic, God will bless. Don't get me wrong with that. Um, but the reality is, is that we live life in a broken world, but not only that, we live life with our broken selves. And therefore, as the scripture says, uh, that we oftentimes see God through kind of a, uh, kind of a, a grain or, or kind of a, a, a distorted view, if you will. We don't see him perfectly. We don't see him perfectly. Therefore, our relationship with him isn't always perfect. As in almost any relationship that we have, whether it's with each other here at church, whether it's with our spouse, whether it's with our kids, whether it's with our friends, coworkers, employer, all those kinds of stuff, chances are there are expectations we have of those people that they oftentimes will not meet. And vice versa, by the way. We have expectations of each other that we oftentimes will probably fail at for a variety of reasons. Most notably is you haven't communicated it. We don't know what those expectations are. And, and that's, a, that's a big thing, right? I don't know. Well, I know what you kind of expect of me. And I fail miserably, thank goodness, um, at times. But here's the thing, is that we oftentimes look at relationships that we have this idyllic idea of how it should go, and there's nothing wrong with that, but then all of a sudden reality kind of sets in, and all of a sudden these relationships that we have oftentimes go through rough times, rough patches, stretches where it seems as though you're getting up in the morning, and the reason why you have that relationship with that person is because you made a commitment to have a relationship with that person. Sometimes relationships are work. Yeah. I'm not sharing anything new. I'm just hopefully bringing something to light. Okay? Um, sometimes it is, that's just how it is. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay? There's nothing wrong. It happens in almost every relationship. There are seasons of ups and downs. There are seasons of plenty, and then there are seasons of want. And, and that's just how it sometimes operates, even in marriages, even among family members, even among friends, etc., etc., etc. And dare I say, even among our own relationship with God Himself. Some of the most beautiful, some of the most impactful writings about the spiritual journey that we have in our relationship with God are written by individuals who are going through some pretty dark times in their relationship with God. I mean, Teresa of Avil, who was uh, just a, a phenomenal spiritual giant, she called it the dark night of the soul. 
and wrote extensively about journeying through times where, where is God? God seems absent. Where is he? I don't know where he is. I don't know. I thought I could count on him. I had expectations of God, and all of a sudden now, if those expectations are not being met. And therefore, I am tempted to just simply walk away from the relationship. God, I expected this of you. You did not come through. You're God. I am not. You should have come through for me. You did not. Therefore, I'm out of this deal. The reality is, is that sometimes, if we're honest, our relationship with God isn't always good. By the way, today's National Laughter Day. <laughs> and uh, we're not going to be laughing a lot. So <laughs> you had your chance. Uh, he, I love what um, an author and professor, Ellen Davis, says about the Psalms. And this is where the Psalms come in, because the Psalms express so much of this dynamic of the relationship we have with God. The Psalms enable us to bring into our conversation with God feelings and thoughts most of us think we need to get rid of before God will be interested in hearing from us. Have you ever thought, I can't share this with God because this would not be appropriate? <laughs> Have you ever thought, I can't share this with God, otherwise he'll get angry with me? Oh, I can't share this with God because he'll be disappointed in me. Oh, I can't share this with God because he won't listen to me. Or worse still, if I share it, he will no longer listen to me after I had shared it, whatever it is that was on my heart to share with him. Have you ever felt, oh, when I come to God, I've got to be make, make sure that what I say to him is, is completely acceptable to him. Otherwise, I will be thrown out of his presence and he won't answer me. He won't do anything. And so oftentimes we clean up our prayers, right? We clean up our prayers. We make sure, and, and by the way, a clean up prayer sounds a lot like the King James Version. <laughs> oh, thou heavenly father, if... Yeah. <laughs> the only person I'm, I'm disappointing is King James, and he's been dead for a long time. I mean, you know what I'm saying? We flower up our prayers. We're not the only ones who did that. The Pharisees did that, by the way. I mean, I, 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 I don't have a copy of it anymore, but when I was in cemetery, I, um, I, I was just interesting. One of the prayers that one of the professors shared with us was a, an example of a Pharisaical prayer. It was unbelievably wordy, lengthy, and had nothing to it. It was all fluff. It's like, are you even real? Right? And so I, what I, I share this because um, part of the journey of Psalms that I hope that we have been seeing as we've been going through this book is the, is the absolute rawness by which David and others who have written these Psalms come to God and they don't hold back. They let him have it, so to speak. It's... it's it's almost like the cry of Job. Now, Job got it. Don't, don't, get me, don't get me wrong. But Job, after having suffered needlessly, by the way, Job didn't do anything wrong. Okay? He did not do anything wrong. If you want to know why people suffer sometimes, perhaps the answer is, there's no reason. 
They did not do anything wrong. Some of you are sitting here today and you are going through something that is hard, that is difficult, and you may be suffering through it. And guess what? You did nothing wrong. It may have been the choices of someone else that now you have to pay for. That is not uncommon. But Job finally gets to have it out with God and finally begins to say, God, why? And he doesn't hold back. And do you know how God responds? He doesn't hold back. <laughs> Were you there, Job, when I laid out the foundations of the world? Were you there when I marked out the boundaries of the land and the sea? Were you there when I did all of this? Oh, you don't know. I don't know if I can say this as clear as I can and keep saying it over and over and over it again to you, my brothers and sisters. And it's this. Sometimes suffering happens through no fault of our own. And sometimes we may not fully realize why we went through it until many years later, if even then. I share all that because as we come to today's psalm, there is, as we're going to see here in this beautiful psalm in Psalm 31, is the reality is that David once again is in anguish. He is suffering. And what I want us to see is the kind of suffering that David is going through. But not only that, how he deals with it, and not only that, how God responds, and not only that, what it looks like in this particular kind of suffering and how God responds to David in many ways to this particular kind of suffering. There's all kinds of suffering out there. There's physical, there's mental, there's spiritual, emotional, etc., etc., etc. All kinds of suffering here, okay? And oftentimes, it's many different facets when we suffer. It's all things that, you know, we are suffering mentally and physically. It's oftentimes not just one specific thing because we're all when it comes to our connectedness about our spiritual self and our emotional self and our mental self and our physical self, it's all connected, okay? We oftentimes can't separate those things. And I believe that's intentional as much as I would love it to be separate because I like things orderly. And I like to make sure things do not touch, right? I think one pastor had it beautifully about the difference between how men think and how women think. And I think women oftentimes, they, everything connects, apparently, for all you women. Right? I don't know. But for men, at least for me, I know not everything connects. I can literally separate one thought from another. I can do that. I can literally, my wife can ask me, what are you thinking? I can literally respond truthfully, I'm thinking about nothing. <laughs> nothing. It's not complicated for me. In that way. However, when it comes to suffering, it's incredibly multifaceted and complicated because it affects all aspects of my being. And this is no different here as we're going to see with David. So if you have a Bible with you, let's go to Psalm 31 this morning. And we're going to look at not the entire chapter, but several verses, key verses from this chapter. And what I want us to see is understand what is it that David was going through here and how does he respond to this and what does God do as a result so here's where we're going to start off here with verse 1 of Psalm 31 and it says the following in you Lord I have taken refuge 
let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. So right away, David kind of comes off with a, what we call a declarative statement. He makes a pronouncement. He declares the following. I have taken refuge in you, O Lord, and I will never be put to shame. Deliver me uh, in your righteousness. And here's what was most likely going on, is David is at this point most likely in exile after being king because now his third son, his, his most likely his favorite son, and in many ways was considered to be the most handsome man in Israel at the time, his name was Absalom, was now most likely in Jerusalem having in some ways dethroned his father from the kingdom. And David now finds himself once again on the run. He now finds himself no longer king, now once again as he was when it came to Saul, now he finds himself once again because of his third son, his third in line son that is, that he now finds himself out of Jerusalem, out of favor, not only of being king, but not only this time, is that ever, nearly so many of his people that he ruled over, who at one time sang songs that, that Saul killed his hundreds, but David killed his thousands, that now all of a sudden are turning on David and saying, yeah, you got exactly what you deserved. They're cursing him. They're ridiculing him. He is now most likely kind of banished out of Jerusalem because his son has taken over. It is an incredibly difficult time. And now he finds himself in a situation where he has no one virtually to turn to because everyone else has turned against him. Have you ever found yourself in a situation like that? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you were all alone, that there was no one else you could turn to? Because everyone else that you could have turned to has now turned against you. I don't know about you, but perhaps in our human nature, and we see it often with those who are well-known, celebrities, politicians, etc., 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 in which they are incredibly successful. And then all of a sudden when they do something that leads to somewhat of their unsuccess, instead of oftentimes feeling sorry for them, we kind of gloat about it. Ah, you're being brought down to my level. Ah, finally you're getting a taste of reality. You're getting a dose of your own medicine. Ah, finally, ha, the, 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 the king has fallen. Those who have once ruled, those who were so successful, have gotten a taste of failure. And it feels good to see them suffer a little. Because misery loves company. I've seen articles written about this, that there is a psychological impact of us kind of rejoicing in the fact when someone that was well-known and successful has fallen and we take pride in that. We kind of rejoice over that. In many ways, this is what was happening in Israel. There were so many people, even Saul's family, by the way, who were looking forward to the day when David would get his. And he finally did. And they gloat. And they say, it's about time. Don't come, don't come to me for help or comfort or empathy or sympathy or anything like that because you will not find it here. That's in many ways what David was facing here. He was facing a situation in which he could not turn to anyone, it seemed like. And so who does he turn to? He turns to God. And he makes a declarative statement, not based necessarily exclusively on hope 
and the, and the knowledge of the scriptures, but also on his experience before of how God has worked in his life. And he says, without a doubt, in you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Another word for that shame in Hebrew is worthless. Let me never be considered worthless at all. Deliver me in your righteousness. And then he says the following, verse 2, and this is more of a request. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Keep me from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Right there, David writes several times, you are, you are my refuge, you are the God of my refuge, you are my rock. And it got me thinking, what in the world is David referring to when he says, God, you are my rock of refuge. You are my refuge. More than likely, David is referring to a specific location in which he was very familiar with because it was not the first time he had been there, as he probably finds himself there once again. The location in Israel most likely was a place called Masada. You can go there today. You can tour it. You can see it in all its glory. You can understand and see how it was considered a rock of refuge. I'm going to throw a picture up here. I'm not. The person behind the computer is. He's going to throw a picture of it up there. And so that is what this Masada, this rock, looks like. David most likely went there the first time when he was fleeing Saul. It was most likely one of the times where he and Saul encountered one another when Saul was in the cave, either relieving himself or doing whatever, and David used to cut off his robe and say, hey, I got a, cut off, I got a piece of your robe, took his spear when he's camped out one night and said, Saul, I got your spear, I could have killed you, I didn't, I want to honor you because you are God's anointed. This was a place David was familiar with, and most likely this was the place perhaps where he might have been writing this psalm as he was fleeing once again from Jerusalem, was Masada. It also has a significant in Jewish history in that as Rome was once again closing in on the Jewish people, the Jewish people fled, or at least 900 and some odd Jewish men, women, and children fled to this place where they all took their own lives rather than face enslavement under the Roman government. And in fact, there's apparently, whenever you join the military in Israel, you kind of remember for Masada, you kind of repeat that as a mantra, that never again will Israel be enslaved. So in many ways, David has this picture, has this location perhaps in mind as he's saying, God, you are a God of refuge. And to get to this top is an incredibly difficult path. It is not easy to get to the top. And by the way, it's in the desert. It's in the southern, southern part of Israel, and it's incredibly hot. Could reach temperatures of 120 degrees plus. So trying to get there and get up there is incredibly difficult. It is not easy. And it is perhaps here that David thinks, I am safe. I am, I am now with you, Jesus. This is okay. But not only that, there have been so many times when God had rescued David from potentially life-ending, or certainly career-ending, certainly relationally-ending sort of situations that all of a sudden he might have also in mind as he is writing this. And so this is what is going on as he is sharing and writing this psalm, most likely. God, you are my refuge. In you, I can be safe. In you, I can be protected. 
in you I know it will not end poorly. It will not end poorly. We have many examples throughout Scripture of this same thing. And what I love is the reality is that David doesn't know what will happen with him, but he knows regardless he'll be safe. He might die. He'll be safe. He might be physically harmed. He'll be safe. It doesn't erase necessarily the whole aspect of the fact that regardless is that at the end he may die, he may never again assume the throne, but regardless he is safe with God. One of the examples that I think of when I think of this is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know these three guys, right? Book of Daniel, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were Jewish men who were taken at a very young age. They were trained in Nebuchadnezzar's ways and uh, put in his service, in his court as advisors because they were the best of the best of the best that Israel had to offer. And then one day Nebuchadnezzar comes up with this brilliant idea. By the way, that's sarcastic. This brilliant idea to erect a statue of himself in which at a certain time when the, when, the, when the horns would blow, that all people in Babylon were to bow down to this statue and, and worship this statue. And this whole time we see these, and Daniel, of course, is the fourth one. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this, in this particular case refused to bow down to this statue. They too found themselves in a situation much like where David is where the whole world, at least in this case, Babylon was against them, including the king. And they had nowhere to turn, no one to find refuge in, except God himself. And so they are brought before King Nebuchadnezzar, and King Nebuchadnezzar gives them an alternative, or gives them a, a, an ultimatum, rather. And he says, either bow down to this statue when it blows the horns, or I'm going to throw you into a furnace, and you will be burned alive. Your choice. Listen to what they say. And I love this response in Daniel 3, verses 16 through 18. It says this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But I love verse 18. Listen to what verse 18 says. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Did you hear that, church? Sometimes we die. But God is the God of the living and the dead. Sometimes we get hurt. But God is the great healer. God's reach doesn't end where life on this planet ends. It extends well beyond it. And I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew this. There is nothing you can do to us that you can ultimately harm us. We will not be, in the end, defined by not worshiping we will not in the end be defined by the ones who got thrown in that fiery furnace. We will not be the ones who are defined by the fact that we disobeyed you. We will be defined by the fact our God will save us, even if he doesn't save us in the way we think he ought to save us. Now, there's a realistic expectation to have. Right? I love how sometimes I do it too, okay, church? So don't, 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 I'm not knocking anyone here. I love how sometimes my prayers are really trying to get God to do what I want him to do. 
right? I want God to do what I want to do, what, what I want him to do. And really, sometimes my prayers, oh, I'm so good at sinning. Um, I'm so good at it. I am, I am an expert at it. And I don't even, I'm not even trained in it. I don't have to be trained. That's how good I am at it, okay? I, can mani- I try to manipulate my prayers at times to get God to do what I think he ought to do, right? I do. I do. I, 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 oh, man. I mean, the stuff that I think, oh, thank you, God, that only you and I know what I think at times. <laughs> None of you will never know. <laughs> and it's for your benefit and mine. <laughs> I mean, it's just, oh, it's just amazing. And yet, I love what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say. It doesn't matter. Throw us in. We may die. But regardless, we are not going to yield. We're going to turn to God. And of course, we know the story, right? They get thrown in the furnace. By the way, the guys who threw them in the furnace died throwing them in the furnace, which is just fascinating to me because why didn't they get, why, did, why didn't they die either? They didn't. And then also Nebuchadnezzar had a peephole in the furnace, right? Because he, Why? because he wants to see what's going on in there, obviously. So he looks through, and of course, we see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and there's a fourth person in there. They're walking around the fire. Hello. You know, sometimes God does deliver us in some pretty miraculous ways, and we just need to acknowledge it. And this was one miraculous way that they got saved. And they got pulled out of that furnace. And by the way, they got pulled out so, so well, they didn't even smell like fire. They didn't even smell like they were in the fire. None of their clothes were even singed. By the way, one of the things I don't like, just FYI, is campfires because I don't like the smoke on me. I really don't. I really don't like how it smells on my clothes. There are people in my family that love that smell. They love the smell of wood fire on their clothes. I, I don't. I mean, I cannot imagine coming out of that and Nebuchadnezzar going, you don't smell like you were in that fire. You don't look like you were in that fire. How in the world is, and you know what happened as a result of that? Nebuchadnezzar says, oh, I'm wrong. Anyone who doesn't worship their God dies. Okay, that's a little extreme, but I get it. I get it. So it's just a beautiful thing is that David doesn't, I'm sure he hopes he's going to be rescued. I'm sure he hopes that he is going to once again regain the throne. But I also think he realizes, even if I don't, God will rescue me. God will take care of me. I'm going to turn to him. Now, the story is that eventually he does take the throne. Unfortunately, Absalom, and one of the things that Scripture shares about Absalom, it was about his hair, and that plays a significant role in it, right? His hair, and I'm very jealous of it, um, is that he had really thick, beautiful hair. I have no idea what that's like. None. I, amen. <laughs> um, yeah, I have no idea. But here, here's how he dies, is that he's on a mule, and, he's, and the mule is walking, as a mule does, and goes under an oak tree, and all of a sudden, he gets, his hair gets caught in the branches of the oak tree, and he can't free himself. You imagine that, and he's dangling. The mule just keeps walking. He's just dangling there. Hello. The, the King James Version says between heaven and earth. Well, that's, ugh. okay, fine. Yeah, between heaven and earth. He is stuck. He is stuck. And it wasn't until um, 
David's commander says, why didn't you plunge a spear into him as one of his men reported the fact that Absalom's hanging by his hair? And he says, I'm not going to do that. David said, don't lay a hand on him. Guy says, I'm not going to wait. He goes and kills Absalom. And David assumes the throne once again, but he is incredibly devastated and heartbroken. He is absolutely heartbroken over the death of his son. Probably his favorite son. Sometimes, sometimes when we get redeemed, when we get restored, it oftentimes isn't without pain and anguish. Not everyone lives happily ever after. But David had faith. And then he says the following in verse 5. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. If you're familiar with Scripture, perhaps you realize this is not the only time these words have been spoken. And certainly not only by David. Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus said the same words. And what is so amazing is that both David and Jesus kind of went through the same journey as many of us go through, from anguish to assurance. From anguish, like, oh, I, this is the end, I'm done, to assurance, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Jesus, at one time, hanging on the cross, screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Absolute anguish. And then the last words he ever spoke on this earth as fully human and fully God were, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. It's going to be okay. And he died. He died. That was it. I think in many ways that is our journey as well. From anguish to assurance. That there are times in our lives that we suffer and there's seemingly no one we can turn to. And yet we can turn to God in that moment of anguish and hopefully receive assurance. Receive assurance. David writes this in verse 15. Many times are in your hands. Many times, or my times rather, are in your hands. My life. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies, from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. One of the things that David and I think every one of us perhaps never want to have is, the Jesus, is for Jesus to turn his back on us. And he doesn't. And he doesn't. He doesn't turn his back on us. He didn't turn his back on David. He doesn't turn his back on us either. Even when everyone else seems to do so. Jesus doesn't. So here's the thing. Thomas More said this. Here, bring your wounded hearts. Here, tell your anguish. Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. Maybe you're here today, or maybe you have recently experienced the anguish, the pain, the sorrow that David experienced. 
the anguish and the pain and the sorrow in which those around you have turned against you because of your failings, because of what you have done. Maybe there is a belief that you have that it's all over. I am not going to get out of this. This event is going to define my life, and there is no hope. Absolute anguish. I'm going to encourage you today that you can turn to Jesus. I want to encourage you today that you can turn to the one who will never turn against you. That you can receive assurance from him who created you, who knows you, who loves you more than words could ever communicate that you were his own. I want to share this out of First Peter. I don't have it on the screen but I want to share it nonetheless of the assurance that I believe Jesus Christ gives to every single one of us, whether we realize it or not. And he gave it to Peter, who knew a thing or two about anguish and assurance, who knew a thing or two about what it meant to actually deny who Jesus was and to be restored as the chief apostle. He writes the following, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. My hope and my prayer is, is that you will hear this. Anguish is hard. It's horrible. It seems like it will never end. You might actually believe it might never end. But I want to share this with you this morning. It will. It will not last forever. There is an end in sight. And there is assurance that you do not travel this alone. There is assurance that you are loved and valued more than you could possibly ever know by the God who created you. And it will end. And you will be redeemed. And you will be saved. And you will not have this event be the cornerstone, the mark of your life. That will not be your legacy. Your legacy, my legacy, our legacy will be that we are his people. We are his children. He is our God and he is our father. Amen. Pray with me, please. Father, I am so grateful that in the hardest of times where it seems as though no one is with us, no one seems to care. Where it seems as though everyone's is against us. I am grateful that you are not. I am grateful that no matter what may happen to us, even death itself, Jesus, we have the assurance to know 
we will still live. That we will not stay dead. That we will not stay in sin. That we will not stay in brokenness. That we will not stay in pain and sorrow. But we will have victory over it because of you. Father, I pray for every single one of us this morning that you would give us the assurance of who we are. Not who we think we are, but who we are. Because you say who we are. A royal priesthood. Special possession. Your people. And I pray, Lord, in that assurance that no matter what we may be going through, that in that assurance, Father, we would hear the words, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. In your holy and precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen.